Welcome to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor David Eldridge. John chapter 10. So we're circling back for a few weeks to something that we talked about in January. Uh, Psalm 23.1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or I have no need. And we've said that's, that's called a confidence psalm. There's only a handful of those in the book of Psalms where, where the, the writer is not asking for anything. He's not even thanking God for anything. He's just, he's asserting this is what it's like to be under the care of God. And so that's what Psalm 23 is. It's David basically bragging uh, on God. Here's what it's like for me to be under his care and his management. And we said this year we want to grow in our confidence to be able to say, because the Lord is our shepherd, we don't, we don't have any need. And that's, that's not the same as saying we get everything we want or everything works out the way that we want it to, but that God is, his, his care and management of our life is loving and skillful. So we, we, we looked at Psalm 23 in January. We used this companion book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, because most of us don't know anything about shepherds or sheep. And uh, this book you may find helpful. It's devotional, not theological. We do have a few out front. If you want to pick one up or you can order, I think they're $7 or something on Amazon. Uh, Last week, we started looking at John 10, which is the most well-known New Testament passage that talks about Jesus being our shepherd. And uh, it's an extended parable, first half of John 10. It's an extended parable, or it's these three mini parables that Jesus is telling in response to something the Pharisees do in John chapter 9. In John 9, Jesus heals a guy who's born blind profound miracle. And the Pharisees get upset because he does that on the Sabbath and they consider that work. And so it, it, it breaks their law. They've already decided that Jesus is not to be trusted. He's not sent from God and he needs to be shut down. And this just exacerbates that tension. At the end of this investigation, the Pharisees hold with this guy who's been healed, this guy's testimony he says, well, this Jesus, he's sent from God that you can't You can't explain what he's done any other way. Where else would he get the power to do something that we've never even heard of, healing a guy who's been born blind? And the Pharisees' response to him is to blame him. You were steeped in sin at birth. That's why you're blind. To shame him. Who are you to lecture us? And then to excommunicate him. They kick him out of the synagogue. In John 10, Jesus gives these, again, either one extended parable or three mini parables to contrast his leadership with the leadership of the Pharisees. This is how I am shepherding God's people versus how y'all are shepherding God's people. So I'm gonna hit real quick what we talked about last week just because it all hangs together and then we'll look at something new to close. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen, or we said a better way of understanding that uh, than the gate is, is, is the courtyard by the door. That's what those words actually mean. Anyone who does not enter the courtyard by the door but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. The doorkeeper opens the door for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. They'll never follow a stranger. In fact, they'll run away from a stranger because they don't know his voice. So we said this picture, you're in a, a town or a village, people own two or three sheep and they keep them in a courtyard attached to their house, walled courtyard attached to their house. And every morning the shepherd comes and knocks on the door and the servant whose job it is to answer the door recognizes the shepherd and so opens the door and lets the shepherd have the sheep who takes them out to graze them for the day. 
And we said using Ezekiel 34's background that that doorkeeper is the father and he's recognizing Jesus and allowing Jesus to have leadership of his people. And in that little section, Jesus contrasts himself with thieves, with robbers, and with strangers. And he says, I'm not like any of those guys. Then in verse seven, this is a different scene. This is set out in the open country in the summer where shepherds would graze their sheep for months at a time and not come home. Very truly, I tell you, on the gate for the sheep, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. So in these, during these summer months, at night, the, sheep would take, or the shepherd would take the sheep to these little sheep folds or sheep pens, these circular enclosures with a, that have a gap in the wall, and the shepherd would actually sleep in that gap. So when Jesus says, I'm the gate, he's, he, he is. He's the one sitting there. At, he is the gate. Nobody comes in or nobody goes out without going through him. Nobody comes in, there are no predators, no sheep rustlers, nobody goes out. The sheep can't leave in the, until the morning when Jesus says it's okay. Again, there's thieves and robbers and they steal and they kill and destroy. They exploit the sheep for their own ends. Jesus doesn't do that. He saves, he comes at, that we would have full life. They're strangers and the sheep don't know them and don't follow their voice. That's not Jesus. He says his sheep follow him because they do know his voice. So picking up in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. So here Jesus, just, he says what he is implied up to this point. He just says, I'm the good shepherd. When you hear good, think true, ideal, genuine, real. Good as opposed to false, not good as opposed to bad. He's saying, I'm, I'm an authentic, I'm the genuine shepherd. And this time he contrasts himself, not with a thief, not with a robber, not with a stranger, but with a hired hand, with an employee. And there's no reason to think this employee is doing a bad job. He has a responsibility to take care of the sheep and he seems to be doing that. But then when he sees a wolf, well, that, that changes the game a little bit for him because now his life is in danger and he's not willing to risk his life for somebody else's sheep. Like in our vocabulary, we would say, it's just a job. It's just a job. Like I'm not doing that. And we wouldn't necessarily fault him. You work at a bank, you work at a store, you work on a car lot and somebody comes in with a gun and says, I want that, you're going to give it to them. You're, that car or garment or sack of money is not worth your life. It's just a job. And we wouldn't fault anybody for doing that. So I don't think there's a reason to fault this hired hand because he's not willing to put himself at risk. Maybe, but I, That doesn't seem to be what Jesus is saying. I think it's just, again, he's creating a contrast. Thieves and robbers and strangers have zero investment in the welfare of the sheep. The hired hand has some, but it pales in comparison to the investment the shepherd has. They're they're his. They're his possessions. They're not his job. 
He's invested his time, his money, his effort, and his energy into the welfare of these sheep. We've said before, if you see a sheep that's thriving, it's because they have a shepherd who cares and knows what he's doing. The welfare of a sheep is, a, is wholly dependent upon the care and skill of the shepherd managing that sheep's life. And it's work. It's hard work. And so this shepherd is deeply invested in the welfare of the sheep. So when he sees a wolf, he steps in between. Parables are stories we've said before. They're stories Jesus makes up, but he pulls them out of real life. They have a real life context, even though they're, they're, they're uh, made up stories. And they, have a, they're, they're, they communicate a spiritual truth. And many of them have a twist. There's like a surprise ending. And the surprise in this parable is willing to lay down your life. That's, that's extreme. It's one thing to say, I'm going to try to protect my sheep from this wolf. It's another thing to say, I'm willing to die on behalf of, for the benefit of my sheep. Again, if, if sheep are, if their welfare is 100% dependent upon the care of the shepherd, well, if the shepherd gets killed by the wolf, that leaves the sheep in a pretty bad spot. It's heroic, it's noble. It maybe protects the sheep in a temporary basis in the moment, but long-term, they're still gonna be destroyed. We'll come back to that in a minute. The thing I want us to spend a little bit of time on this morning is stuff that you all already know. None of this is new, but I want to remind you it's easy for us to forget. I know my sheep and my sheep know me as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Like, listen to that equivalence. Jesus and the Father are one. And he says he knows us and we know him in that same way, to that same degree. That's mind-blowing to me. The level of intimacy, the depth of relationship that Jesus invites us into. No in the Bible is relational. No in the United States is intellectual, and they're not the same thing. When we read the word no in the Bible, we tend to think no about. I know these facts. I would even say these facts are true. When you read the word no in the Bible, that's not what's behind it. It's an experiential, relational knowledge. It's the word used to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. There's certainly, obviously, truth is a part of that. But it, there, again, there's an experiential, relational component that our, our understanding of knowledge lacks. And so it can cause us to kind of move in some, we, we can miss some of the big pieces. In the, in the Bible Belt, one of the most misused verses of all time is Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so people say, well, I'll just say out loud, Jesus is Lord, and then I'm going to heaven, and I'm going to get on with my life. It doesn't work that. It's not a magic formula. It's not open sesame. Just contextually, to say Jesus is Lord in Rome where Caesar is Lord is to put your life on the line. It's a declaration of loyalty and allegiance that could cost you everything. But, but beyond that, the, the, the point of Jesus coming was not just to forgive us of our sins so we could live the life that we want to live and then meet him in heaven someday. And you, you know that. Again, that's a, that's a, a, a gross misunderstanding, particularly in the Bible Belt. Well, I believe, which means on the true-false test, I would say true, Jesus died for my sins. So I believe that, intellectual assent to that. 
So then when I die, I, I get to avoid hell and spend forever in heaven and understanding heaven to be some version of paradise, not heaven to be relationship with God. Jesus says in John 17, three, this is eternal life, not that I forgive you of your sins and then meet you in heaven someday. This is eternal life that you know me and the father who sent me. Eternal life at heart is reconciled relationship. You know that. Jesus does die to forgive us of our sins, but that's the beginning, not the end. The end has always been for God to form a people for himself. Read Revelation 21 and 22. It's where everything is headed. All of history, God is moving towards this point where he can say to this group of people, you're my people and I'm your God. If you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, that's why he started the whole thing in the first place. It was to form a people for himself. Sin derailed. Jesus put things back on track. And Revelation 21 and 22 shows where it's going to end. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. That is eternal life. The vine and the branches, because God is life, as we abide in him, his life flows into us. So that's abundant life here and now and on into eternity. There is no death in him. So if you're connected with him, of course, your life will go on forever with him. It's a different it's a, it's a different understanding than we can fall into at times. If I intellectually assent, if I mentally agree to these certain propositional truths, then when I die, I don't have to go to hell. That's not, that's not the plan. That's not the gospel as revealed in the Bible. It's no, you're estranged from God because of your sin, because of your rebellion. And I sent my son to deal with that rebellion. That's the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be adopted back into my family. That's the offer that's on the table. I know my sheep and my sheep know me to the degree and the depth that I know the Father and the Father knows me. That's the invitation that's available to all of us. Many of us come up short. We, 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 we say no, either intentionally or unintentionally. We, we, we don't pursue that option, that opportunity, and that invitation. Stephen was saying earlier, we, we live in a culture that pushes us away from God. Nothing about our culture, maybe at some point it did, not certainly I'm 48, not in my 48 years, but has our culture moved us towards the Lord? But some of you that are older than me, maybe there was a time, but that's, that time is not now. Our culture tends to pull us away. Father's Day. Here's a dad being a dad. If you're about to get on the airplane, that's the best thing you can do. Wear that kid out. That's life, isn't it? The conveyor belt pulls us away from Jesus. That boy stops walking, he's losing ground. He's walking and he's not gaining any. There's a pull away from the Lord. And so there's an intentionality on our part that's necessary if we're going to know him as deeply and intimately as he knows us. His knowledge of us, it's, it's, that's already done. It's our knowledge of him. It's an area where we need to, to be intentional. Jesus says some things that to us, it's like, why did... A guy says, I, I want to follow you. This is in Luke 9. Jesus says, follow me. And the guy says, well, let me go bury my dad. That doesn't seem like an 
like a, a, a request that you would reject. Like that seems like, all right, that's reasonable. You want to bury your dad. And Jesus says, no, why don't you let the dead bury the dead? That's not a great PR move. We, we try to figure out how do I make this as easy as possible for you to say yes to Jesus. And there's nothing wrong with removing obstacles and giving handholds. Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. And there are ways of understanding that. When you, when you died, initially your, your body was put in a tomb and then you decomposed over the course of a year and you went back and then your family came back after a year and put your bones in a, in a, in a box. So there are kind of two burials and maybe this guy, he's waiting on that 12-month mark. It could be. Many people think the guy's dad's not even dead. It's a huge uh, responsibility on the firstborn son to bury their dad. And so he may be saying, I want to follow you, but I can't yet. I've got these other obligations. Either way, what Jesus is saying is you can't delay here. He walks 3,000 miles over the course of his life and his disciples know what it means to follow him. It's a very literal walking after if they decide to go fishing for a couple of days, he's gone. Connection is lost. You know, a guy says, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. I just need to go and say goodbye to my family, which again, doesn't seem unreasonable. And Jesus says, nobody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Again, we're going, that's, that's pretty harsh. That's a very stark thing to say to somebody. But again, it's a question of priority. Jesus is on the move. And he's saying, like, if you, if you want to follow me, then get to walking because he's going somewhere. We, we lose sight of that because Jesus isn't physically among us. If we actually had to follow him from Marietta to Kennesaw to Smyrna to Powder Springs, to, like if we were doing that, we would know whether we're following him or not. We'd wake up in the morning and he's either here or he's not. We would know because we would spend all day every day walking the roads with him. But it's different for us because he's not physically present among us. He leaves us his spirit for sure. But we can't see him with our eyes in that same sense that the disciples would know. Well, am I following him? At least in the physical sense, am I following him? Maybe their hearts weren't aligned. Judas's wasn't for sure, but they at least knew if they were physically walking after him. And that's the challenge for us in this spiritual relationship that we have with Jesus, the invitation is still the same. It's repent, change directions, and follow me. Keep in step with me. Go where I'm going. Live your life the way I'm living. Father's Day, I think one of the greatest things fathers can be to their kids are examples. That's one of the things I think of when I think of father. First thing that comes to my mind is example. Paul can say, follow me as I follow Jesus. And we want to be able to say that not just to our kids, but to everybody else. If I'm following him and you're following me, then you're following him as well. And we want to be able to say that. We can't say that in every area of our life, but we want that to become more and more true of us. And so the question for all of us is, well, are we following? Do we just know certain things about him? Or do we know him with the depth and intimacy that he is made available to us. How do we grow in that? It's the same stuff you've heard since you were in Sunday school for those of you that grew up in church. It's those basic spiritual practices and there are no shortcuts. It's, it's prayer, that's communication with God. That's how we 
speak to him. That's how we develop relationship. That's where we ask for help, like Stephen was talking about earlier. It's reading the Bible, which is not a rule book for life. It's a revelation of who God is. You want to know who God is, read the Bible. And it's daily obedience. We talked about that last week. We know his voice, and he wants to lead us and guide us in the dailiness of our lives. And we want hearts that are sensitive to that leadership and to that guidance, not just on the things that we think are spiritual, not just when we get in over our head, not just for big decisions, but in the dailiness of our life to say, I wanna keep in step with you. That, again, that picture of Jesus moving from town to town to town to town can be really helpful for us. Am I actually following him where he's going? There's this book, I'm trying to remember which one exactly. I think it was called Great by Choice by a leadership guy named Jim Collins. And he talks about these two explorers. I think it was in 1911 or 1913. I can't remember exactly, but there's two guys and they both wanna be the first to the South Pole. One's in a Norwegian. And so his name's hard to say. It's like Amundsen, A-M-U-N-D-S-O-N. So some of you know how to say it, I don't, Amundsen. And then there was this British guy named Scott. I remember his middle name was Falcon. You don't, you don't hear lots of Falcons anymore. His last name is Scott. And they had two different approaches. The Norwegian guy, Amundsen, what he said is, we're gonna walk 15 to 20 miles every day. That's what he did with his men. If it's a good day and we could go farther, we're not. And if it's a bad day and we'd rather stay in, we're not. Every day, 15, 20 miles. Scott, very different. Good day, we're going as long and hard as we can. Bad day, we're staying in the tent and griping. Amundsen, Amundsen, he won by 34 days. Smoked him. And this guy, Jim Collins, he talks about the 20-mile march. But anyways, this idea, being consistent over a long period of time. Eugene Peterson calls it a long obedience in the same direction. That's what it is to grow in intimacy with the Lord. There are mountaintop high moments. Many of our students, many of your kids are gonna be at one camp in a couple of weeks. That's one of the rare times where the conveyor belt pushes people towards Jesus. For a week, everything they're gonna experience is gonna move them towards the Lord. And then they come home and they're like, what just happened? Because they're back in the real world where everything about their day is not gonna push them towards the Lord. And if they don't develop those practices, it's gonna be difficult for them to grow in intimacy. And the same thing is true for us as adults. There are no shortcuts. Those high moments are wonderful, but it's the dailiness over time. I'm gonna pray even when I'm tired. I'm gonna read the Bible even when it doesn't make sense. I'm gonna be obedient even when it's hard. And over time, what that does is that that, that, that unites us to Jesus in a very deep and intimate way. You won't know it from Monday to Tuesday. You won't know it from January to February. You probably will only see it a little bit from 2023 to 2024. But from 2023 to 2033, you'll be a completely different person. And your relationship with him will be on a completely different level. And so I wanna encourage you in that. I don't want anybody feeling guilty about anything you are or are not doing. I want you to hear an invitation from the God of the universe who knows you better than you know yourself, who formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb. And he said, I want you to know me at that same level of intimacy and depth. It's a phenomenal invitation.
If you start, if you start looking around just real quick, if you start looking around at the other major religions in the world, most of what they're going to tell you is you get to serve this God. Ours doesn't say that. Ours says you get to be adopted by this father. And that's not the same thing. We serve him. Yes, we serve him as sons and daughters. And it's completely different. And that's the invitation that's available to all of us. We're gonna close this morning with communion. Uh, The way we take that as a church, you'll break off a piece of bread and dip it in the juice. There's gluten-free communion in this basket and there are um, the prepackaged communion if you're more comfortable taking that. This is what I want you to have in your mind. We, we mentioned this whole idea. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. And there's a sense in which like, that's great, but that doesn't help us a whole lot if you're dead. We need somebody who can lead us. In verse 17, another surprise in the parable. Jesus says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. Nobody else can say that. We get the benefits of his death and we get the benefits of his ongoing life. Usually you have to choose. Either I die for you or I live with you. Jesus says both. I died for you and I will continue to live with you. The benefits of his death, we get forgiveness, which sets us free to be reconciled to the Father, to live in union with him. And we get the ongoing shepherding of Jesus after his, because he's been raised from the dead. And so as you take communion this morning, I would love for that to be running in the back of your heart and your mind. He's the good shepherd. He's the true, ideal, genuine shepherd. He lays down his life for his sheep. You and me, we get the benefits of his death, which is the forgiveness of our sins. It's not just what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for, which is relationship, deep and intimate. That's what God desires. I'm gonna be your God and you're gonna be my people. Like I'm gonna say this as crass, in a crass way, but I mean, if you're not interested in that, you're not interested in heaven. That's what it is. That's what it is. And he can stir that hunger and that desire in you if you don't have it now and ask him to do that. God, I, want, I, want, I don't want to know you that way and I want to want to know you that way. You pray that prayer with a, from a place of honesty and he'll, he'll respond. So we've got hit the benefits of his death but also the benefits of his Resurrection. Some of you are in a spot right now where you, you need some direction in your life. And we would love to pray that God would speak to you, that, that Jesus would be your good shepherd through this time. Some of you are walking through dark valleys today and you need to know the comfort of a good shepherd. And we would love to pray. Nobody's gonna tell you what to do, but we would love to pray that God would comfort you, minister to you, speak to you in a way that you could understand. So if you're at a crossroads, please let us pray for you that Jesus would be your good shepherd. If you're walking through a dark valley, please let us pray that Jesus would comfort you in the midst of that. And then last thing, because it is Father's Day, for some of you, Father's Day is not a fun day. It's difficult, either you're grieving and maybe it's your first Father's Day without your dad. Maybe your relationship with your dad wasn't great or maybe your dad wasn't great. Maybe you desire to be a dad and you're not. I, I don't know, but for some of you, Father's Day is not a day to celebrate. It's, it's difficult. And if that's the case, we would love to pray that the Holy Spirit would comfort you this day. He'd bring healing where healing is necessary. He'd help you to forgive if that's the thing that needs to happen. And that if your desire is to be a dad, that he would work out those circumstances for you as well. So I'm gonna say a prayer. If you're helping with communion or with ministry, if you'd take your spot up here in the front, 
you guys pray along with me if you're willing. Father, on this Father's Day, we're grateful that you are ours. You're perfect. And for some reason, you invite us into this father-child relationship. It's unique on the planet, and we're so grateful. And we want to take full advantage of the invitation to be known by you and to know you at this great, deep, intimate level. Would you stir a hunger in us for that? God, I pray for those who are wrestling with guilt this morning, they would know the power of your forgiveness. I pray for those who are looking for direction this morning that you would speak clearly. I pray for those who are hurting this morning that they would know your comfort. God, we pray for those who today is a difficult day that you would minister to them with grace and with mercy and with kindness. All of the things that we need, I pray as we take communion, it would be more than a physical act, breaking bread and dip it in juice. I pray that that would open the door to you working in our hearts in a deep and profound way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Stonebridge Church Sermon of the Week. 